following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. It is good to be back. It was also a blessing to be with my dad over the last three weeks. When we were here before, we had started our study in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is, in terms of its length, the shortest book that we find in the Old Testament. As we have said before, the length of a book doesn't tell us the value of what is what it contains. The length in and of itself does not allow us to know the importance of the message contained within. What I said before when we first started was that when we first opened the book of Obadiah, right away we see that it is in its first part focused primarily upon one nation. And that nation is Edom. And so I said that what we wanted to do was to think about the book of Obadiah not as a single, isolated, self-contained book, but that as being one book in a canon which contains all the scriptures that God has provided for us, 39 chapters in the old, uh, books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So what I chose to do to try to give us a, a broader frame or a broader context for looking at what we're considering here, I decided to go back to the Abrahamic covenant first given to us in chapter 12 in the book of Genesis. Because we see in that first four verses statements that have importance and relevance today and tomorrow and forever. They had importance when they were given for the people in the context to which uh, the words were first given and to those who were subsequent to them. So I want to go back and now again and just briefly review the things that we saw there. I know many of you have been with us, uh, were with us for the last two sessions, and this is repetition. But we like repetition because we think that by repetition we get to learn and then even to think again and anew about things we've already th thought we had a reasonable understanding of. And we go back and then we begin. And some things we look again and say, I missed some things that I maybe shouldn't have missed. And maybe we'll catch them the next time through. But specifically, I want us to, re to remember, and I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 12, just to have that open and then look directly, because you may want to do that as well. And that way you will be able to see that the things that I'm saying, they either are in the text 
or I'm committing an error, which if you hear that, I invite you to call me out on it so that we can be corrected. And those of you who have, who have been with us, you do know that I do at times misspeak things. I say one name, I intend some other name. And then someone in the audience gives me the honor of letting me be corrected on the spot, which is good because people are listening. And then it's, it's, so it's good to have a correction on the spot and then move, move ahead rather than just leaving it and then somebody after the meeting's over say, oh, you made this mistake. <laughs> so I invite you, if you hear something that is, is misread or mis, uh, is wrong here, just let it be known. Let me read first again those first four verses in chapter 12 in Genesis. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in all the families of the earth, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord has spoken to him. That's those portions of that. And so we see here then God at work. The first thing we know here and we recognize is that God has a plan. He has a program. He has something that he's doing. And Abraham has a, has a role to play. He has something that he's supposed to do, but it's not of his own devising. It's not for his own purpose. It's not for himself. But he's simply doing the thing that God wants done. And so this idea of moving from his family, leaving it behind his family, and leaving behind his, you know, his kin, that's a big deal. And a lot of people would not want to have to go through an ordeal like that where they're just separated from everything they have ever known in terms of the people and the friendships and the kinships and all those things, and to move off to some other strange place. But Abraham obeyed God. God made certain promises to Abraham. And since the God who made the promises to Abraham was the one true God, then there is the assurance that what he promised he will do there's no way and no place for it to doubt about that. What he has promised he will do. He said of Abraham he would make a great nation. He said that those who would curse them would have as an enemy God himself. That's something that all the nations needed to listen to and to hear. And so when we get Edom now in the book of Obadiah being the focus of the as he's in the cross, or as that nation's in the crosshairs of God because they didn't heed what God said on the part of whether or not to curse Israel. It's like they defied God, almost as if to say, well, I dare you. And God says, I am that I am. Now, hang on to that because I threw that in because we're going to be getting to something else where that word, we use that. So one of the things that was interesting about this is now we understand that the promises of God were to be passed, were to come down through a, a genealogical line. And so Abraham, 
and then through Isaac, and then through Jacob, through that line. We see that I said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob had a sibling. There was a birth that was a birth of two at once, I mean, in quick succession. That was Jacob and Esau. And those two, those who descended from them over the centuries, began uh, and had a never-ending contention the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob. The descendants of Esau in the book of Obadiah are represented through what we are calling Edom or the Edomites. And on the other side of that is the Israelites descending through the line of Jacob. We saw in Genesis chapter 25, I'm not going to turn there in my text this time, but but we saw there that from the, even before the birth, after Rebecca had conceived, you will remember that at first she was barren, but there was an intercessory prayer, intercessory prayer made for her. And God answered, and there were two twins within her. But her experience was that these two are struggling with one another, and she wanted wondered, well, what do these things mean? God told her that there were two and that what was going to happen was that the older would serve the younger. The older would serve the younger. So that's a prophetic statement. And it's always kind of interesting to us to see how that actually, actually played out. Because we see some controversy elements in how it played out. But what we see here is we saw, as for the birthright, the birthright, the rights of primogeniture, of, of being a firstborn, and as far as a property, to be able to get that double portion of the we shall say a state of the inheritance that's left, to have a, that prime leadership role of the one who, whom is being, uh, the one who was the prior one, the, as a successor to have that, that position. And so there was a lot, so the birthright was a big deal. And to lose a birthright in ordinary times would not be a happy occasion. Our text tells us in Genesis that Esau despised his birthright. And the way that he despised it and the, the description that's given to us is that he said, in response to Jacob, Jacob said, when Esau came, he said, well, I'm hungry. I'll give me some of this red stew <laughs> that you are making. And so Jacob greatly valued the birthright. 
And so he said, he made a bargain. He said, well, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give you some of this rest too. Now, Esau's response is very telling because the scripture tells us that he said, so what is it to me, this birthright? I'm about to die. I'm about to perish. That's a no value to me, so sure. We have a bargain. We have an agreement. The birthright is yours. The red bowl of stew is mine. I'll eat. I'll be sustained. We both are happy. We're good to go. Okay. He despises the birthright. We know that that was a horrible thing to be in a position to despise the best thing. Think about that. To despise the best thing. That's exactly what a lot of people do. God says there is one way of salvation. And he says that one way is my son. The Lord Jesus Christ. His birth death, sacrifice, the sufficiency of himself as an offering for sin, all of these things, the best thing. How many people despise the best thing and say, I don't want anything to do with that? And then sometimes they'll make a lame excuse. And they say, well, I know so-and-so who proclaimed to be of that faith, and they did thus and so. And so I don't want anything to do with that. That's despising the best thing. That's what Esau did. But Jacob had a different mindset. It was, I know who God is. And I know the importance of this birthright. And I want that. And so as it was, he had the birthright. Now there came a time for the blessing to be bestowed when Isaac was about to depart. And in his mind, he was going to bestow this blessing upon his firstborn son, who was Esau. And so he said to Esau, notice this whole thing about food. He said, you know that what I like from this, this wild animal, go out and, and fetch that and, and make me this nice meal, and then I will pro- pronounce this blessing on you. So Esau went about doing exactly what his father asked with the anticipation that he was going to get the blessing. The birthright and the blessing. But what happened is that Rebecca, their mother, devised a scheme so that Jacob could go in and present himself as Esau and have the blessing be bestowed upon him. Jacob was skeptical about the scheme and whether it would work or whether it would get him killed, (laughs) essentially, because he says this is a dangerous thing. But he went along with it, and his father bestowed the blessing upon him. And Esau just missed by time. It's like it was... He just missed, just by the nick of time, as we say, Jacob was out of there before Esau came in. And his text tells us that when Esau presented himself, 
Isaac said, began to tremble, and he said, who, who are you? And he said, I'm, I'm Esau, your firstborn son. And he, I tell you, Isaac was troubled. So then, well, who was that who came in? Well, Esau knew what had happened. And he said, well, that deceiver, he had done this to me. He done dishonor to me twice. He, he's, he's taken my birthright, and now he stole my blessing, and now I hate him. And he let it be known so that his mother understood his intent to murder Jacob after they had mourned the death of their father. She used that information to accomplish two things. The first thing was to provide a way for, for, for Jacob to be safe from the murderous hatred of his brother Esau. Another thing was to provide for him to be able to get a wife that was approved within their system, a, pro a, a wife of the proper lineage. And as a result of that, had him sent away, she thought to Jacob, I mean to Isaac, and had him sent away to her brother and her family. And that worked out well. Jacob acquired a family down there. And then after all the years she was there, and I think a total of 14 years is from what we can see, maybe even more than that. But anyway, for more than a decade, more than a decade and a half probably, he was there, but then he was returning with his family and all his possessions and all this. And he was going to come into contact with Esau, and Jacob was afraid. He was concerned. He was saying, I know my brother desired to kill me. He hated me. Is he still of that attitude? Does he still want to kill me? So when you go back and you look and think about how the account is given, that Jacob first presented those who were his concubines and their offspring, and then Leah, and then his preferred, favorite wife, Rachel. And then finally he got to meet face to face with Esau. He had brought things, gifts to him. The thing that stands out here though that I find very interesting in light of future developments is that they had a cordial meeting. It seems that the personal hatred, the murderous hatred that Esau had had dissipated. And so he even referred to Jacob as my brother and said, well, you know, I have sufficient. I don't need the things you're offering to me. He relented and accepted those. But they had a, a peaceful uh, meeting together, coming together. Now, when, and it's very interesting for me, the scripture which tells us about how God provided for Esau a place to live in Mount Seir, a red mountainous area. And the text says God provided this land for Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. They went down to Egypt, and they were down there for a long time. We know about the Egyptian captivity we know that conditions got so bad that they cried out to God for deliverance. 
And we also know that God heard that prayer. And he sent a deliverer, Moses, to tell the old Pharaoh to let his people go. And he did, ultimately, after great loss to himself. So now the people have left, and they want to get to the land that God has promised to them. And the best, shortest route was to take the highway right through Edom's territory. And Edomite said, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. And so they were hostile to them. And they would not permit them to travel through. Even though they made the promises that we, we won't disturb you, we won't interfere with those possessions that belong to you. We, all, we merely want to pass through. God had told them, don't have any, don't go against Edom or Edomites. Don't do any harm to them. Just be peaceful and go through. It, w- it wouldn't be. So this was a great animosity there. And then there began to be, from that point all the way through, conflicts, different wars, Edomites against Israelites. Edomites joined with other nations in conflict with Israel, all kinds of things. And it just never ended. It just continued. So when we see in the scriptures talking about Edom and Edomites, there's so many references, it's just incredible. Six, seven books refer to the Edomites and the awful things they did. And so that kind of lays the background out of which this judgment uh, oracle is being presented that Edom, the Edomites have, have come to, it's like the, the cup of their iniquity has filled up. And God said, now it's time for the judgment to fall upon them, those hostilities. So that is sufficient now for what we want to say on that part. Now I want to go back to the title of the book. The title of the book It says Obadiah. The first verse, I'm going to read several verses here, and then I'm going to focus a bit on the name that's given here, Obadiah. In verse 1, the vision of Obadiah Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So that's Edom. But Obadiah received this vision from God. God is telling his servant what's going to happen so that the people can hear it. Now, Obadiah, the name, I want to approach this by holding two names in kind of a parallel and consider them 
the first one of those is Obed. And the other one, of course, is Obadiah. And I want to consider these two kind of in parallel for this reason. The name Obed, or the word Obed, from what I understand, I've been spending considerable time trying to be sure I get, I get this the way it's correct. And it's good pastors there because he'll correct me if I get it wrong. But here's the way I get this. And here's what, here's what I'm doing. So I'm looking at a parallel with these names. And so Obed, if you look in your concordance, you see that the word derives from a Hebrew root. The Hebrew root means servant or one who serves. Now, interestingly, from what I was reading, the Hebrew root could stand alone. It could be with another word attached as a prefix or another word attached as a suffix. It's just an interesting note. So Obed, as we see it in the book of Ruth, and so I'm going to look at Obed in terms of the book of Ruth, and I'm going to turn to Ruth and make a few comments in regards to that, and then you'll be able to see of the line of thinking that I was having here by presenting it this way. Now here's what I thought is that when we see the words one who serves it's natural to wonder. Serves whom? Standard alone, the word doesn't tell us. So we're going to consider serves whom for Obed, Naomi's grandson, and Obadiah, the prophet here. Now, let's look at the first part, I mean, in chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. So we will remind ourselves that Ruth's situation at this particular point, she was at a difficult place. She was in a form of depression because of the turns that her life had taken. She needed to be encouraged. Her sons, she had two of them, under ordinary circumstances would have been expected to fulfill a certain role, a certain role for her in her advanced years. But those men had died. And so she didn't have anyone to fulfill that role. And we can think of the vulnerability in that sense. But she had a daughter-in-law, Ruth. Her daughter-in-law gave birth to a son. And I want us to notice what is said about him. There are certain women who said certain things that are quite significant in this connection to where I'm going and what I'm trying to present here. So in Ruth chapter 4, and in verse 13, 
is it does say there about Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then it says, the women, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. So we're thinking, as I said, some, somebody to fill the role that her sons would have normally filled. Now, these women are saying, somebody has been born to fulfill that role for you. And then they said, and I'm going to skip to verse 15, and may you be, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher. May he be someone who will do those things for you. That, uh, and then down in verse number 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And then notice the next verse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. That's interesting, right? But that's what these women said. There's a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. Obed. And so when I said it's, it's natural to say a servant of whom, in the context of Ruth and the portion we just read, we can think about the for whom being answered, answered through this context that the idea is that he would be one who would serve Ruth in the role that her sons could no longer fill. That would be the idea. That's the idea I'm presenting. That's for your thought about that. But I'm doing it in a parallel to Obadiah because you see how we relied, and when we wanted to get an idea about what the answer to that might be, we relied exclusively on the context because the word stood alone. It didn't tell us anything more. And so if we were going to get an answer to that, we had to get it from somewhere outside of the word itself. Now to Obadiah. Obadiah is a word that is comprised of two parts. The first part is, as we read it in our text, Obad, Obed, Obed. And then on the end, we see an I and then we see an, see an A-H. The I is a division point. On the left side of the I is one word, root. And on the right side of the I is another. On the left side of the I, the Obed part, that word comes from the same root word as Obed. From the same root word in Hebrew. And so we take that to mean a servant or one who serves. And now back to the original question that we said we would pose. Or we would want to know, well, serves whom? And here, we don't have to rely, rely exclusively on the context to tell us the answer to that. Why? Because the end of the verse, I mean, the end of the word, the A-H, Yah, I think is where we think about that. It's a shortened form of the proper name of God. So we, it's, it's the word that we refer to as the tetragrammaton the four part, which often we will see written as Y-H-W-H, with, rendered that way without any vowel pointings because the Jewish people didn't want to pronounce the name of the Lord. Now, when you look in your Bible, depending on which translation you're looking in, you might see the word Yahweh, or you might see the word Jehovah, or you might see the word Lord. 
So Jehovah, or Yahweh, that is derived from that tetragrammaton with vowel pointings being added, taken from the word for Lord, which is Adonai uh, there, the Hebrew word Adonai, taken from vowels from that word and using it. And so that's how you get Yahweh or Jehovah. Interesting stuff. Pastors taught us all this. So this is not new. This is not our first time hearing this. He's already told us how many times. We don't know. But you get the point that I'm making, right? So we're not exclusively relying on the context for this name when we want to know serves whom. Because that word at the end, the portion of the word at the end, tells us that. But I do want to, I made reference to Moses. I made reference to the word, what we call the tetragrammaton. And so I want to look back at Exodus chapter 3. Because in Exodus chapter 3, in verse 14, Moses had an interesting conversation uh, with God. Moses was once selected by God to go down into Egypt to ask for the deliverance or to tell the old Pharaoh uh, to let his people go. And so Moses had a heavy uh, job, a heavy mission to carry out. And in, in, so in Exodus 3, in verse 13, it says this. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and said to them, the God of your fathers has sent you, has sent me to you. And they said to me, what is his name? What is his name? That's a normal natural question, right? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's the word. So the Obadiah is comprised of these two words. The Obed part, which means one who serves, and then the Yah, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord, one who serves the Lord. So when you read your, note, your, your, your Bible, in my reference Bible, it will say in the margin, one who serves, that's what the name means. And I'm just doing this because to me it's it's, it kind of develops the idea of what that means. That's why I'm doing it like this. I could have just said, well, the name means one who serves, and then just move on. But I, I, I thought maybe this would be a helpful way to do that. And so I hope you found it to be that way. One who serves. So I'm going to, in, in basically the message today, along that line, because now the word serves, or servant, or serving, those are words that, pre- that are replete in the scriptures. I mean, they are just throughout. The whole concept of serve, serving, and all that. We, I mean, Pastor just recently was in this passage talking about serving two masters. Serving two masters. Serving whom? Who should ask that question? Who should ask it? Are we serving? See, I think some people would say, without any hesitation, that every single one of us is serving. And that the essential question is, whom are we serving? Does that make sense? So if we all are serving, and the essential question is, whom are we serving, 
That's a serious issue. Now, we, when we're looking at Obadiah, his name means one who serves the Lord. I should be one who serves the Lord, even though that's not what my name means. Everybody who has a name, Obadiah, should be one who serves the Lord. The word Obadiah, the name, appears in our scriptures, I think, about 12 times. We, I don't know what all of those people's lives were. Whether they lived up to the name or not, I don't know. But I, I said, though, that for Obed, Ruth's Obed, Naomi's Obed, that they served, and we looked at the context to find out the whom. And for Obadiah, we didn't have to rely exclusively, notice the word exclusively, on the context. Because the context also tells us here in Obadiah that this Obadiah not only had the name one who serves the Lord, but that he was in actuality one who serves the Lord. How is that relevant to us? Many of us bear the name and are known to be Christian people. So the question is, you know what the question is. Maybe I shouldn't vocalize the question. But the whole idea is, serves whom? So we want to serve the Lord. We want to serve him in truth and in righteousness. We want to do what the Lord wants us to do. We want to ask the Lord to help us to want that. And then to help us to do it. Otherwise, what's the point? Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to you because everything is because you are who you are. We are here. We have health. We have strength. We have the word of God. We have enough wherewithal within our brains and understanding to be able to, to understand small portions of what thus said the Lord by way of the revelation that has been recorded and kept, reserved, I mean, preserved from those who want it and do want to destroy it. So help us, we pray, O oh God. In the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, we ask it with thanks. Amen. Thank you very much. We appreciate your kind attention.